Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Trojan Talk Podcast. I'm Ryan Young, publisher of Trojansports.com, and your familiar point person on this particular program. A few notes at the top before we get into today's show. We recorded on Wednesday afternoon, and there were some developments since then that will be discussed later in the podcast, just, just to give you the absolute latest updates. It's looking very optimistic for USC's defensive line to be at full strength. Nick Figueroa, the starting defensive end, who sustained an AC sprain in his shoulder in the season opener and the the injection earlier this week, had not practiced through the first three days. Clay Helton called him a game-time decision on Thursday morning, but after practice Wednesday, Vic Soto, defensive line coach, left no doubt that Figueroa was going to play and play a big role. So, I'm inclined to go with Vic's assessment there, just given how confident and matter-of-fact he was about that. Also, Jake Lichtenstein, the key reserve defensive tackle who played more than half the snaps last week and also dinged his shoulder in practice this week, is good to go and will play. So let's get to it. With no further preamble or ramble, whatever you want to call it, here we go. All right, welcome back to the Trojan Talk Podcast. I am Ryan Young, and I am joined by Max Brown, our Trojansports.com analyst, the former USC quarterback, my familiar co-host, going on year three now. Max, how's it going? The years are flying. Year three, already here. I guess last year doesn't really count. Last year was like a little half year, so I'll, I'll, I'll stick it to uh, two and a half. But sure. uh, no, things are good to go. SC's one and oh. That's uh, no complaints on my end. So we didn't have Max on last week, but we had a good pod with Adam Grossbauer, the OC Register. But Max will be here most weeks, giving us his uh, expert insight, quarterback analysis, everything you've come accustomed to the last few years on this podcast and on the site. And, man, we have a lot to discuss this week. You know, normally we wouldn't spend a ton of time dwelling on a season opener against San Jose State. It was a 23-point win. 37, and yet the fan base is a little ruffled this week about the offense and the offensive coordinator and such things. So we'll get into that. But before we do, uh, I wanted to ask Max about his experience last weekend. He was not at the USC game. He did watch it eventually, but he was calling the game Montana and Washington. Max, how'd that go? Uh, it was good for me. It was not pleasant for, for Husky fans. Uh <laughs> I called two games this past week. I called uh, UNLV Eastern Washington uh, Thursday night in Vegas, and FCS uh, Big Sky opponent Eastern Washington came into Vegas and won. And then on Saturday, I called Montana Washington, and after the first drive, I thought Washington was going to blow the doors off of them, but Montana kept hanging around. Defense showed up, and they stunned the Huskies. So for any any SC fans out there that are pissed off about a, a week one win against uh, San Jose State, Washington fans haven't been able to sleep this week, so we're, we're, we're good sitting compared to the Huskies. Not much comfortable sleeping going on across the Pac-12 North, I would say. Very true. The North, I mean, for so long the North's had the stronghold on the South. It looks like this year could be the first time that the tide is turning a little bit. What was the experience like for you being in the booth? I know you've done it before, but getting more and more reps now, and how have you felt yourself just kind of grow in that role? That's a good question. I think the the breakdowns I used to do or still do, but in just different different formats. I mean, it's it's cool. I'm really kind of taking that into the booth. So instead of it being a 15 minute breakdown, it's now a three hour breakdown. Is is kind of how I'm approaching it. But no, it's exciting. When I when I got into this business and got into got into broadcasting, 
Uh, that was my goal, to call games on Saturdays, big-time college football games. And I texted my girlfriend right before kickoff, and or I said, you said girlfriend, fiancé now. Fiance. I was going to say, I was going to say. <laughs> but uh, I texted her right before, and was just like, this – this this is awesome. This is legit. It, it feels big time, which is which is great. And um, yeah, I mean, little little nerves for sure. But it's, it was the first comparable to a game day feeling as a player um, that I've had in, in quite some time. Wow. What is the most stressful part of being in that role during the game? You're live on the air. There's no redos. For better and for worse, the most stressful part is honestly the open. So right when they say. We're coming to you live from the greatest setting in college football, and to your point, it's live. There's no redos, and so um, I got to be on my stuff. I got to be. Uh, I got to be sharp. And if you stumble over your words or, or anything like that, doesn't doesn't necessarily look good. And it's one of the only times as a color commentator that you're on camera. Usually, obviously, you're just kind of voicing over most of it. Yeah. So that open is the most stressful part and, and certainly something where these podcasts and radio appearances in terms of just getting reps, it helps, but gotta, gotta start fast, I guess in, in football terms, but yeah, it's certainly the most stressful part. Hey, as, as Graham Harrell and Clay Helton will tell you that the more reps you get, the more comfortable you get out there. <laughs> I guess so many parallels to, to, to football, but no, it was sweet. And I work with JB Long, who's the voice of the Rams on the radio. So LA fans will, will know will know him, and he was great. And first of many, I'll be heading back to Washington in two weeks, or I guess now ten days. I'll be calling their Arkansas State game and have one more Pac-12 appearance in November and a couple more stadium games. So I'll be getting uh, getting more reps. But on the off weeks, I'll be doing USC uh, USC radio. Great stuff. Well, we're excited for you. I know all of our listeners have been getting to know you the last few years are excited for you. So very big things happening in the career of Max Brown. And in the life in the life of Max Brown, you hinted at it. So I, I know a lot of uh, big-time recruits like to get their commitment in before the season, so they don't have to worry about it. You, you got your commitment in with a proposal and an engagement. Uh, just congratulations. I appreciate that. Yeah, they... I remember or Clay Hilton always says the best formation of football is victory formation. Well, that was the uh, that was the best knee I've ever taken throughout my uh, throughout my life. I guess I can awesome. say getting uh, getting down and uh, proposing to Vic. But yeah, I'd be lying if I said football season wasn't at least some factor. Trying to uh, <laughs> try to lock in the commitment before the busy fall schedule comes. But no, it was awesome. I, I, I surprised Victoria. She's a Trojan as well. Listeners might remember her if you're a, a volleyball fan. Yeah, we were dating during my time at SC, and five years later, here we are. Now I got to, got a fiance. I still got to get used to saying that, but no, I'm stoked. Amazing. All right, well, let's get into some football talk. As I said, USC wins 37 over, over San Jose State on Saturday, but it was 13 to seven midway through the third quarter, and really into the fourth quarter, I guess. Boy, what was what was your overall thought watching back through that game? And obviously, maybe you, you had kind of heard some of the the feedback already before you saw it. But just at that point in the game, what do you think USC was thinking? Yeah, I had a unique perspective in the game just because, to your point, I didn't I didn't watch the TV copy live, so I'm coming in after the fact, and it was a unique opportunity for me. I actually only watched the all 22 footage to start, so I got no commentary, and then I came back to the the Twitter fear. And my takeaway at that point in the game was, I mean, it, it just 
There's no one glaring issue that, that, that sticks out in terms of why the offense is sputtering at times, I guess. And then right there, I'm thinking, man, I felt like this before. I feel like I remember um, having these these feelings when I was a player in terms of, man, that's a week one matchup early on in the season, playing a Mountain West team. Like, why are we not better? Why are we not dominating them? They're hanging around. I can remember that with an Arkansas State, a Utah State, a Fresno State when I was playing. And I got the same sense here. I walk away a little bit more encouraged than maybe some SC fans because I think if we step back, that might be one of the best quarterbacks USC faces all year. So the fact that the defense was able to step up in that regard, I was encouraged. But I walk away with a lot of week one kind of just, there feels like they're still trying to figure things out. But I, I genuinely mean what I say. Walking away with a win and the way the defense played, uh, I do walk away encouraged in that regard. So you kind of hinted at it. Just you know, take us into the player mentality. If you are on the USC sideline on Saturday as a player and there's all this weight and pressure on this season, everyone knows there's pressure on Clay Helton, your coach, and <laughs> you're up six points in the third quarter, is there panic? Is there is there calm? Is there fear? Uh, what what do you think that was going on? Yeah, I think it's not panic, not fear, but more so like, guys, what are we doing here? Like, come on, like almost frustration. You're yeah. almost pissed off a little bit. And it's weird because this year, and I, I alluded this to uh, when, when I talked with Clay on Monday on the, uh, the coaches show, it feels like this year more than other years, SC's still trying to figure out what they have roster-wise at this stage in the game. Like in years past, you knew the four receivers you had pretty much. Sure, you might be figuring out pieces on the offense line and you're, you're plugging in players here and there, but this SC offense, you're still wondering what you have at left and right tackle. You're still wondering what you have at receiver two and receiver three and receiver four. You're still trying to figure out what you have in the tight end. So I got this sense that, you know, everyone's kind of looking around, maybe waiting for someone else outside of Drake to make a play and not trying to mess up and Keaton maybe trying to uh, find that big play and, you know, locking into Drake. And so that sense felt a little bit different to me. But in terms of your direct question as a player, man, you're – you're, 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 you're frustrated, but I think also that's where week one is different in that everyone's trying to sort it, sort things out, sure. trying to find their way, especially with a lot of the uh, or several new faces on the offensive side of the football. Well, uh, in terms of frustration, the fan base, very frustrated, uh, and a lot of it is targeted at offensive coordinator Graham Harrell. Is that fair, Max? Is 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 he the one that that you would be directing your your concerning questions at right now, or do you share those sentiments? I think the sentiments are fair in terms of general frustration. If it's going as far as panic, I'm not in that camp. Uh, I I back off of that. I mean, that's what week one football, especially in college, is for. Is you're going to have the sputters. You're going to have the things that you're still figuring out. Um, so. No panic, but I, I sense the frustration, and, and it does fall on Graham because there isn't one theme. It's not like, like I just called the Washington game, and I look and I say, man, that offensive line is supposed to be all world, and Montana got after him. And, hey, those receivers, like they don't have any answers at receivers. They're waiting, to, waiting for a guy to step up, and so there's common themes in that game. With SC's game, it's a weird batted ball. It's Keaton being delayed on some of his decisions. It's... Um, 
you know, uh, a fumbled. And so in that case, like you do have to blame it on the coach because that's your job is to make sure you're tightening, tightening those things up. But once again, and I don't mean to be, be a broken record, I got the sense that Graham is still trying to figure out what his 2021 USC offensive identity is going to be. And so especially moving forward against a weak Stanford opponent, like we're going to see a lot. Like is, is the 12 personnel and two tight ends, is that a glimpse into the future? To me, that is not the recipe for success. And so if you're not, and only because I think that limits USC's explosion. So in that regard, yeah, I'll, I'll put that on, on Graham in terms of, hey, maybe it's time to get out of that. Or when it is a tighter game, we need to find some explosion. We need to find um, players outside of Drake London to take that next step. So share the frustration. I get it. I understand it. But I'm not to the point of panic because I think that's a good San Jose State team. That San Jose State team will beat several Pac-12 teams if they lined up head on head. On head. And two, with all the new faces offensively, he's having to sort things out. I think that would be tough for any offensive coordinator, so I have sympathy there. Yeah, I, I kind of preached in my column I wrote and on the board probably. I'm, I'm just not one to overreact to week one. I just think it's very perilous, and you you probably end up making some foolish conclusions if, if you do that. So I'm in wait-and-see mode. But let me broaden this topic for you. After two-plus years of Graham Harrell, how much do you believe in the direction of what he's doing with the offense? This is what's so weird, too, because it really feels like it's a week-by-week thing. And I, I've made this analogy before, but I grew up in the – or I came to SC when Kiffin was play-calling and Sark and T, where there was, like, weeks on weeks where there was no explosion whatsoever. And it was, man, why are we running right behind the tackle when we have all these all-world receivers? And so in that regard, I still am encouraged by Graham. Um but I do think the struggle of not necessarily having a pure identity is concerning for me in that I got the question this morning. I went on a Stanford podcast and they go, oh, what's the air raid like at USC? What's the air raid like? And I'm saying, guys, this is not an air raid. Mm-hmm. And it's really not even close to an air raid. When you talk about going 50 run, 50% run, 50% pass and sitting in 12 personnel, two tight ends, like that to me isn't Graham Harrell. That to me isn't... Um, why you brought him over here. And maybe that's where some of these SC fans want to get to, but that's not why you hired a Graham Harrell. And so I don't think you can have both sides. And in that respect, it's a little concerning to me. I think that USC's tight ends are good, but they're not out of this world where you have to, you know, create unique packages. And when you do have two tight ends in there, I think it can handicap Drake on the outside in terms of making it easier on defenses to cover him. So this whole identity thing, I'm not, once again, not in panic mode. I think these next two weeks will be big in terms of, you know, figuring out what that identity is, but certainly concern for me in terms of this 2020, 2021 version of Graham in terms of how he is sorting that out offensively right now yeah it's weird Uh, we've never really had a good name for this offense I mean I I recall even one of Clay Helton's first press conferences after hiring Graham he was asked about the air raid and he said not sure I would call it the air raid and and Graham has always kind of let the lines be blurred there he's always made a point to say I'm I'm not Mike Leach you know I have my own uh, offense I come from that tree but you know I I have different philosophies Uh, but in recruiting 
they sell recruits on playing in the air raid. So that, that term does get used, but uh, I'm not sure what it should be called. Anyways, building off what we were just talking about, if, if you were a quarterback in his system, given everything you've seen two seasons and last weekend, what would you like about this offense playing in it? What would you, what would you not like? They still have a knack for finding easy completions. I remember that was one of my biggest frustrations when I played at SC is it just felt like, man, we have all this talent, but we're still fighting for every five-yard hitch. We're still fighting for every five-yard out. And in or mo- a lot of the time, uh, early on, especially in uh, more of the, the, the pro-style Kiffin, Kiffin era a little bit there. But I look at this SC offense, and they're, they're still able to find, I mean, I can remember two five-yard outs to Taj Washington that he was untouched. And you're, you're finding easier completions to a Drake London. And that fear that when you are in shotgun mainly, and SC's rolling out three receivers with all the talent they have, you can still sense that fear in the defense. And I think this offense, you know, um, attacks that from a approach point of view still in a good way and always envious of, of Keaton and some of the lanes that uh, that he's able to uh, to throw to I think the concern for me as a quarterback is just hey yeah once again when we do have two tight ends in the game what is our passing mentality out of that it's very clear what the running mentality is out of that in that you know, you're trying to get extra hats in there. You're trying to get more favorable um, looks for your offensive line in terms of tight ends getting involved. But outside of that, like, what are the wrinkles? So as a quarterback, I'm saying, perfect, all about tw- uh, 12 personnel. But it shouldn't be an anomaly when Eric Cromano catches a touchdown. That should happen more than just once a game or once in a career, it, felt, it feels like, for uh, for an Eric Cromano. So Still encouraged if I'm Keaton. I, I do think Keaton was not perfect in that game. And once again, holding him to an incredibly high standard just because of his experience and what he's had, uh, just all the reps that he's had. But tempering expectations only because uh, just a week one matchup. Well, the tight end thing is interesting because all se- preseason we heard how much Malcolm Epps and Michael Trigg were going to help this offense and allow Drake to move outside because they can play that wide position. I think the two things that surprised me the most Saturday, and this is nitpicking, but I'd love to get your thought on it. One of them, number two actually, I'll get to number one after this, number two was splitting Eric Cromenhoke out, flexing him out. I mean, I understand that he's probably the best blocker among the tight ends. He's probably a big help in the in the run game. I know you want to get him some touches as a redshirt senior, but I just don't think that having him in that that Y spot is ever the best option in terms of a passing target. There's just not a lot of upside there in terms of yards after the catch or, or really anything. So that surprised me. And we didn't see much Malcolm Epps. You know, he's still coming back from the turf toe injury that cost him most of the preseason. Maybe he's not ready for a full load. We know Michael Trigg is still learning the playbook. But my number two surprise was just how – they looked at Eric Cromenhoga as a passing target Saturday. I'm right with you. I'm right with you. And I think Cromenhoga has been effective for SC, but I, and you've heard me say this many times on this podcast, I love the idea of going going four wides and putting just 
the ball in Keaton Slovis's hands. You can still run the rock, but it spreads the defense out so much. But I love going four wides because I just think it puts so much pressure on the defense, and that is what air raid. To me, I think that's what Graham wants to be in the back of his mind, at least maybe not every play, don't get me wrong, but more than we have seen. Um, and, yes, they're still trying to figure out the receiver position. Uh, I get that. But to your point, when Kromanoke is on the field, I do think that – limits the explosion that USC's offense can bring to the park. And that's a perfect example of what happened in this game in that SC's offense, they were able to move the ball. You know, they, 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 like, yes, they sputtered, but there, there was movement, but there wasn't that many explosive plays. And when that happens, it's hard to sustain drives. And I think when you're going four yards a clip, six yards a clip, that, three yards a clip, that type of mindset, players play tighter and everyone's playing not to mess up versus when you get an explosion play, it kind of, you know, opens things up just for the entire offense run and pass. So that is something to keep your eye on in terms of the overall explosion or lack thereof. If SC keeps going into 12 personnel, because we've seen it over the years, defenses, when they approach SC, they're saying, Hey, we're just not going to go with the big play. That's how that was the BYU approach a couple of years back, yeah. the whole drop a thing. If we don't give up the big play, we can, survive we can hang on long enough and give our cha- give ourselves a chance in the second half that's what san jose state tried to do um and that's not going to be the last time we see that uh, that blueprint my other nitpick is a more isolated one just more of a curiosity what do you think the the logic was in throwing a third down fade pass to five foot eight katie nixon that obviously did not work out <laughs> <laughs> well that was the concern we talked about that in the spring i think when we were talking about I always thought Katie Nixon was a slot guy. I remember him at at Colorado. You had a LaVisca Snault on the outside, and yeah, and Katie slot or Katie Nixon as a slot guy. And maybe it's I maybe it's depth. Maybe they just trust him on the outside. I, I don't know, but I'm with you. There's no more Michael Pittman. There's no more Tyler Vaughns or um, some of these bigger guys. I guess I shouldn't say that. That's why fans are. Uh, excited about a Kyle Ford or some of these some of these backups. But I'm right with you. When you have a short guy on the outside. And he's in a fist fight on the sideline. I mean, that's not the not the easiest uh, not the easiest deal. So that to me, walking away is one of the biggest unanswered questions in terms of you know what you have with Drake London. Who is going to be the two receiver? Who is going to be the three receiver? I don't think you can survive with that being a rotation type of spot. Hence, the, it wasn't a rotation spot on Saturday either. But who can emerge there? That's that's a concern for me. If you don't have a playmaker opposite of Drake London. I want to get much deeper into that, and there's some really fascinating stats. But before we get too far away from it, you've kind of intimated a couple times that this doesn't look like Graham Harrell's offense or what he ultimately wants to do. Do you think he's being compromised in some way, or it's just he's uh, he's giving in a little bit to get the run game going, or, or kind of expound on that, on that thought you had? That's a good point, and the short answer is I don't know. It's all me speculating. But what I do know is Clay Hilton wants to be a 50-50 team in terms of run pass. That's what he wants to be. And I do know that Graham Harrell coached with Mike Leach, who only has a handful of run plays even in the playbook. So just piecing that together, I would envision Graham wants to be more pass-heavy, especially with how much he loves Keen Slovis. And I, once again, I don't know this, but the impact of maybe Clay is, is uh, you know, forcing them more towards the, the, the balance attack. And I do think there's some something the other side of, I mean, Graham's taken a lot of heat over his time at SC for for not running the rock to a certain level or not having that be as much of the offense. So maybe he, you know, 
he's trying to adjust and 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 be more balanced because there's certainly something to be something to be said there. I just think at the end of the day, there's running, but then there's also lining up in 12 personnel and running in that regard. And I don't think that's that's what Graham wants to be. And I don't know if that's a hey, we really like our tight ends and we're trying to prove a point and and get them involved, or if it's you know what, Ryan, we're, we're a little concerned about what, what, where we're at receiver-wise in terms of depth, in terms of playmaking ability, whatever the answer is, that the hand is being forced to do 12 personnel. Or, and I hadn't even thought about this until just saying it right now, maybe it was you know a flavor of the week, so to speak, and that was a schematic advantage that they thought they had over San Jose State, yeah. just you know getting two tight ends in there and trying to bully ball them. Maybe that's something that uh, we see against San Jose State, but if they're, if they're playing Oregon or Washington, that that doesn't necessarily come out. So that's, once again, to your point, can't overreact just week one, but a very thought-provoking thought process, I guess I, I should say. It, it is thought-provoking, and I think several of those scenarios you tossed out could all be uh, very possible. I was going to ask you if, if there's maybe any any inkling of gamesmanship of let's get this 12 personnel thing on tape for teams to prepare for, even if it's not going to be a, you know, a central part of our package the rest of the season. Yeah, no, I definitely think there's something to be said about that. The one, the problem I have with that though, is just given the general hot seat of clay, I don't think he has the luxury of, you (laughs) know, kind of, you know, sorting things out, so to speak. But they, I think it was Graham made reference to the fact that they may not have showcased everything this week and may have been you know holding plays closer to the vest. So I don't think you're off base, but that reminds me of something that maybe hey, a Pete Carroll has a luxury to do early on in the season. Mm-hmm. Not sure if Clay's in that same camp for sure. Well, let's go back to the receivers. So, so Drake London finishes with career high twelve catches for 137 yards on 16 targets. But really, it was the second half when things just got totally skewed to become the Drake London show, where he had, I think it was eight or nine targets after halftime, and there was only one other wide receiver target. It was an incompletion of Taj Washington. There was three to the tight ends, one to the running back, but only one other target to a wide receiver the entire second half. That was one of the most surprising elements of this game to me, and to what you were talking about before, it... it obviously reflects a lack of confidence in the depth there and and you know we know what drake can do let's just ride that and as i wrote my column or another column i wrote this week and just to be clear you can never have too much drake london in my mind so i am not criticizing the heavy usage of drake at all i'm just more curious as to the fact that they thought they could get nothing else out of the other wide receivers you know taj washington had four catches for 56 yards and a touchdown all in the first quarter had a couple more targets after that, but didn't wasn't really a major focal point of the offense. And he's a guy that I thought could could maybe be that number two and take some pressure off Drake. So I, I think that's the biggest surprise of Week One was just that they really did not seem to trust the rest of that receiver group. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you about that, Ryan, because I'm not a, at, at practice as as much as you are. Yeah. What, was that a true? surprise on your end or having seen practice and scrimmages in the past for you were you walking into week one saying man who is going to be that second guy i'm not sure if they have a guy there that that'll be interesting to follow what what, what camp were you in no i really was confident in taj washington and still am and 
I don't think they really used him uh, to the f- the best way to get the most out of his talents. Interestingly, his touchdown, uh, he was not supposed to head toward the end zone. So that, that was the, the one time they really tested him downfield, and that was only because they got San Jose State offsides and had a free play, and so he just took off. He goes, I was supposed to just stand there. I wasn't supposed to go anywhere. Uh, but, yeah. but in general, I think how you're going to get the most use out of Taj Washington is not – you know, in, in tough catches over the middle necessarily. He is going to, you know, not always come down with the contested catch. But if you just get him those short open routes in space and let him work, because what he does so well is his footwork and his cuts and his pivots, they're just so fast and all camp long. He was just freezing defenders uh, when he got the, the ball in that way. So I he could be a security blanket for Keaton Slovis and say, hey, we need five yards here. Let's just have Taj, you know, run a few steps, turn around, catch it, juke, this, that. I, I would be going to him heavy in that way. Quick slants, just, you know, real short stuff where he can get the ball. And then I, more times than not, he's going to make somebody miss. Now, one more point on the receivers. A guy that we figured was going to be prominent in this offense uh, who wasn't there Saturday. I'm not talking about Brim McCoy, who remains indefinitely away from the team. But Gary Bryant was not part of the, the plan Saturday because yeah. he was he missed most of the preseason with a hamstring injury, and then he missed some days with the, the COVID protocols. And so he was not going to be an option Saturday, not even dressed for the game. But he is back this week, and I think you're going to immediately see him be a heavy part of this offense. And I thought that Drake would be the clear one, that Taj and Gary would be the 2A, 2B, and that you'd be able to work with that. But I also like some of the other guys they have, and I would have liked to have seen Joseph Manjack get more than one target. I mean, the the guy just – I know fans may not really know much about him yet because he was uh, kind of the surprise story of fall camp, but his hands are amazing. And, uh, you know, maybe he has to prove it in in game-like team settings, but in the one-on-ones and stuff like that, he wins almost every battle. So I would have liked to have just tested him a little bit. I would have liked to have seen a Kyle Ford or seen a Michael Jackson the third who didn't didn't even get any chance. So yeah, I was surprised very much so by the receiver usage, and again, not that not by Drake London's heavy usage. And I would never ever criticize however they want to use Drake. Uh, I would I would definitely feed him as much as possible. But I think we'll see. We'll, we'll learn more this week, and I'm really interested to see what Gary Bryant does to help this offense. I think he could be the true stretch the field guy they need. And you know, even though Taj Washington is fast, again, that's not going to be his strength. I just don't have a high confidence on him winning every downfield ball unless he's just way behind the defense. Um, but he does a lot of other things well. But, but Gary is that guy that I think could be that downfield threat to open things up a little bit. What an opportunity for Gary right now after a week where the explosion wasn't there and the receiver group was there. Ryan, when's the last time we I was ever able to even say the receiver group wasn't wasn't there? I guess outside of Drake. But there I mean yeah. it's, it's been a little while since you you sensed the true explosion of the receiver group. So all the opportunity in the world for uh, for Gary to step in and uh, and elevate that group. I mean we heard all preseason and, and we heard it in the past too and it never quite panned out. Um, but it made more sense in the past when you had Vaughn's and St. Brown and, and Drake and those guys. 
but we heard, you know, we're going to have to rotate it more this year. We're going to have to roll more guys in. That's just the, the way it's got to be. And yet there was none of that again. So at this point, you just have to assume that that is just not in the mentality of Graham Harrell or Kerry Colbert or this offense. They're going to pick the guys that they feel they trust the most, and that's who they're going to go with. And and the touches and targets are going to reflect that. Um, so, I, you know, I, I really thought that Kyle Ford would be a factor this year. I, I just like what he does. I, I, I like his skill set. And now... I just don't know what chance he's going to get. Maybe that all changes this week, but you have to kind of change your outlook after week one. And you know, it'll, it'll be very telling this Saturday how things go. I asked Clay, I said, you know, with all the time Gary has missed, if he plays, can he play a full game or is he going to be limited? And he kind of danced around it but said, if we can use Gary, we're going to use Gary. So I think you'll see a lot of him. Yeah, some of those dinged up in injuries are always tough, um, acclimating guys back. And Gary's the type of guy that'll probably get rotated out too when they do go to tight end looks. Uh, versus it's harder to roll out uh, roll out a Drake, but it'll be nice. Sample size is real small; only one game, only four quarters. We'll know a lot more after this next uh, next week. So, one more question in terms of the of the pass catchers. You know, I mentioned Michael Trigg earlier, and and Trigg was as impressive as anybody in fall camp and I still think that by the end of the season he might be one of your top four receiving options uh, maybe top three he's that talented but the coaches have been clear he has to learn the playbook he's coming along you know as Clay Helton said in, in, in fall camp as fast as he can learn that playbook the better for us but he only I think he got four snaps Saturday and and Helton even credited him with with kind of freeing up Croman Hook on his late touchdowns because the defense had to react to Trigg. Is there not more you can do with a guy like that, even if he doesn't know 100% of the playbook? Like, can't you just come up with 10 plays he knows and and try and get him involved? Am I looking at this from the oversimplification? You would know a lot better than I do about how how much you've got to have a guy with just full command of everything to get him out there. I just think that. If, if you're struggling to make plays in the passing game and you have this guy who was a freakish athlete and maybe has the best hands on the team that maybe you could find, you know, more than four snaps for him. No, I'm with you. And USC fans, it reminds me a little bit of the, the Bryce Dixon scenario back in 2014 when we had some established tight ends on, on the roster, but he was the explosive young guy. But he did struggle a little bit with the playbook in terms of remembering the plays and exactly where it needs to be. And keep in mind, when you're a young tight end, not only do you have to remember the pass concepts, but to be effective and to be a main stage in an offense, you have to know the run game concepts as well, which that's like learning two separate traits. And to your point with Trey, you don't, you know, maybe he's not the running guy right now, and it's just pass, and, and that's a totally fair point. But exactly, he can have a package, 100%. Juju had a package. Adoree had a package when they were younger. Um, that's actually a really good comparable. Adoree Jackson, when he was a corner for us, we would have literally in the play call, in the play call sheet, T and Sark would have uh, a number two package for Adoree. It was his like 12 plays that he knew that they could get to where he knew where to line up. And I definitely think that's something that, uh, that, that, that they can get to, especially if they turn on the film and they don't see the explosion and they do see, Hey, when he, when triggers on the field, he opens up a uh, chrome So certainly think there's something to be said there. The reason you might not do that and not trying to, um, love up on kind of maybe some of the struggles of, of, of last week or back some of the struggles last week is 
when you do get so focused on trying to dial up one specific player, then you can, you know, handicap yourself in terms of, you know, trying to call the offense for all other 11 guys on the field. I never forget, I, uh, Kate Otten, who's the best tight end in the Pac-12, plays for Washington. I talked with UW's offensive coordinator last week, and he said one of the best parts about a play caller uh, when I have Kate on the field is I don't have to scheme things for him. It just flows naturally in the offense. And as a result, you don't sputter trying to get one specific guy the ball, um, and it's more free-flowing in that regard. And so definitely something you said about both having packages, having it free-flowing, but that cat-and-mouse game is is why Graham gets paid the big bucks. And uh, if not having a specific package for Trey didn't work out for the offense this week, I definitely think there's something to be said about implementing that uh, week two versus Stanford. He does get paid the big bucks, and I don't, so you can uh, read into that as you'd like as to how the value might might take some opinions here. But I I, I do think before the season's out, you're going to see Michael Trey play a major role. He's just too good. Uh, well, we can't spend the whole pot talking about the offense, but I've got to hit on three last points real quickly. We need your thoughts on Keaton Slovis. He goes 24 of 36 for 256, two touchdowns, no interceptions. You know, again, to my untrained eye, just watching the game live, I just really didn't think he had a lot of options to throw to. It just got guys weren't open. Uh, did you see it differently, and how would you critique Keaton? Yeah, I think Keaton was was solid. I mean, I think he played well. I walk away. You're not turning on that film and say, "Man, they're struggling at quarterback." There, there, there's none of that. And he he did he did make some plays. I do think for me there was a few plays where I want to have him get through the progression quicker, and that's just like that next level stuff, right? That's that year three. If you want to be a first round draft pick, like there's there's plays where, hey man, get off that quicker. You don't you don't need to be standing there or uh, maybe circling on Drake on a third down where it's man you know he's covered let's get to the other side of the field and as a result you might be able to find a completion or get the ball to your back quicker and i think clay might be in agreement with me there because he made a point in his interview of man i was proud of keaton uh of getting to the check down on the third down he like specifically called out one play which made me think and which made me think in coach talk that that's probably something that he is telling keaton of man get off it quick and get the ball to your hands don't need to hold on to it. We saw that with some of the uh, with one of the sacks there as well. So it's and that's been uh, Ryan. We, we've talked about that over the years in terms of Keaton getting to his check down. That was a big thing for me as a uh, 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 against him as a true freshman was get the ball down, get the ball out of your hands because it's those little things where when you get the ball to hands, um, a guy can can make a guy miss and or a defender miss and 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 we know how that plays out. So it's little nuances. It's nothing concerning, but at the end of the day, I just didn't see that explosion, and it wasn't like there was missed opportunities. That was just how the game was called and how and that was uh, San Jose's defensive strategy, so it kind of handcuffed Keaton a little bit there uh, in terms of the pass game. You know, it should be noted that most of these guys we're talking about, most of these names, he has not played with before. He has not played with Tosh Washington. He has not played with Michael Trigg or Malcolm Epps or Joseph Manjack or, you know, the guys that did, didn't play, Michael Jackson III. Uh, so it, how much do you think there was, like, just a chemistry evolution that has to happen before you see him more comfortable targeting those guys, or should that be taken care of by now after spring and camp? It's a great question. 
Part of me wants to say, man, that should be taken care of in spring and fall camp. I mean, we, they've had tons of reps, a full normal offseason. That should, that should be taken care of. But the other part of me, especially when games get, gets tight, I know how it is, especially when you have a Drake, a guy that you can trust, that's proven. We've seen all the late fourth quarter moments. Like, it, it makes sense why he keeps going to, uh, to a Drake London all the time. And I, got, I, I really don't have a huge problem with that. Um, and so I, I do think there's an element of, they do have to grow that chemistry um, throughout the course of the season. And there's probably a little bit of doubt in terms of Keaton of, of, of who is that second or third guy, especially when those guys are unproven and Drake is so proven. I definitely think there's something to be said about that. Yeah, and, and I should clarify that that Trig and, and Epps and Manjack all came in the summer, so they weren't there in the spring. So it, that could still be a factor to some degree. Okay, uh, last two things on the offense. The offensive line, the run game, we'll just kind of combine them together. Did you think that things looked better up front? They rushed for 160 yards, which isn't you know groundbreaking. They had two games last season that were better than that. Honestly, uh, Arizona and Arizona State were both in the 170s, so it's not like it was a revolutionary performance, but they do go with the uh, 1A, 1B backfield that we were promised. Keontae Ingram, 15 carries. Vivai Malapai, 14. And uh, the team gets to 160. Overall, how did you feel things up front looked? Not a lot uh, solid, once again. But that's the thing, right? Not a whole lot different than years past, which I'm good with. I think you can win every game on your schedule with that offensive line. I genuinely believe that. They're going to have a shot. But to get to that dominant SC level, this is the qualifier we've had to say a bunch over the years, to get back to that dominant SC level that we, like, you know, SC fans expect – there's still a big jump that needs to be made from my vantage point to get there in terms of this is San Jose State. There was some, you know, free free rushers on the edge, free guys getting getting through there in the run game that you want to get shirt up. I do think, I mean, it's two young tackles. That's going to happen. We've seen that across college football, even for some of the best teams. So not panic mode. I was pleased with those guys. Um, pleased with, you know, they rotated some other guys, um, some of the, the reserves in there, like a Dietrich who's played ball before. Yeah. So I love the, the the depth and whatnot. But uh, I thought it was a good performance. I definitely see why Amonheim got the nod. Like that is that is I, I'm seeing where that's coming from. But I didn't see a huge jump from years past. Yeah, I'm with you. I don't know that I have any definitive conclusions about the run game or the the offensive line. So we'll just see where it goes from here. Okay, let's get to the defense, and I, I really feel bad that we're kind of short-shrifting the, the defense when they have their uh, just a excellent all-around performance. Hold San Jose State to seven points, the lowest point total for a USC opponent since Utah State in 2016, and really one that kind of backs up all the optimism that we've had for Todd Orlando and you know, just buying into the narrative that things would be different this year. He would take a leap because he had that full off season, that full spring, and the chance to really uh, impart his mentality and leave his true imprint on this defense. And that was one thing that Clay Helton highlighted after the game uh, or in the days after when we talked to him, just saying, I, I really saw T.O.'s personality out there. We'll start big. What was the overall most impressive thing to you about the defensive performance, and and do you buy that as a harbinger of things to come for this defense under T.O.? 
most impressive thing to me was the secondary. And it's funny you made reference that we don't we get so used to you know nitpicking the the negatives. Uh, obviously, the first half of this podcast, but the secondary came to play, and I was extremely impressed. You talk about big picture wise, Talano Hufunga gone, Isaiah Palomao doesn't play. And you also forget OG. I mean, he's gone too. So you're, I know ITS and, and you have experience on the secondary, but there are, you know, three starters from a year ago gone. And the fact that SC walks into that stadium again against Nick Starkle, who will be an NFL quarterback, he will get a shot in the NFL. They won the Mountain West last year for a reason. And SC lines up in man coverage. Like, I've, I haven't seen SC run that much man in years. But they, that was their game plan. That was their challenge. And they trust this secondary. And you truly get the sense that it feels like a next man up mentality for this for the secondary. And I know every coach says that, right? Every coach says, oh, next man up, next man up. But it truly feels like Dante can roll out literally the next recruit, the next body, the next number 20, whatever, and they can cover some people. It looks like a lot of confidence. And I was extremely plus in the secondary. And to your second point, can that carry on for the rest of the year? Without a doubt, especially as you know, those those younger guys get even more confidence. I mean, you talk about relying on a true freshman at corner um, or in the secondary to you know have a have a role. It's only going to get even better. So super excited about that. Um, and that secondary very very promising, and that only helps, especially if the defensive line maybe gets a little thin. Maybe not a defensive end, but interior wise, if they get a little thin, and you can lean on the the secondary. That's a big, that's a great sign. It's really the formula for how Orlando has always wanted to have his defense where he, he really wants to sell out to stop the run. He wants to be aggressive with blitzes, and he wants to trust his uh, secondary in, in one-on-one coverage and, and kind of leave them in on islands and, and trust that they'll do their job. And if that can happen, then he can really leverage that and do a lot of what he wants to do, which is what we saw on Saturday. You know, it's, it's accountability time, so... We spent all preseason, you know, making projections and evaluations and assessments and delivering strong opinions. And I just like to take stock of them at times. So with the secondary, three guys that I was lukewarm about or unsure about. Isaac Taylor Stewart, I have to give him credit. I thought he looked very solid out there. And it definitely gave me encouragement for the season to come wasn't really challenged all that. I think he had two passes thrown his way, uh, allowed one short completion, but so wasn't targeted much, which is good. He expressed a lot of doubts about him because he hadn't really shown it in his previous opportunities. And I just don't always believe that, that the light is going to turn on for a guy this late in his career. So hopefully that's a sign of things to come. Greg Johnson, I've been, I mean, I, I think he's, he's serviceable and he's going to be solid at times. I think he'll get, give up big plays at times well he comes out and he's the player of the game uh saturday with that pick six so you know i'm not changing my opinion overall about him but certainly have to give him a lot of credit for being right where he was supposed to be and reading that play well and just making the game-changing play the third one though chase williams who gets to start at safety filling hufanga's void there i i expressed it on podcast and on the site and and I, I don't want this to come off as like an anti-Chase Williams thing. He's a really nice guy. Uh, I enjoy talking to him. The coaches just constantly rave about his work ethic and his football IQ and understanding of the defense. But he's another guy where I, we've seen a lot of him in the past. He's a redshirt junior now. And I just didn't know if 
all of a sudden in his fourth year, he's going to be a different player because he hasn't been sitting on the bench. So, you know, he has played a lot in previous years. Is, is he going to be a drastically different player suddenly now? I had my doubts or hesitancies, and then he, he really struggled Saturday. And to his credit, after the game, he, he acknowledged it head on and said, I, I didn't play well. I, I want to be an NFL guy, and I've got to take advantage of my opportunities. I didn't do it. But he had a team high four missed tackles, and he bit on that run fake that freed tight end Derek Deese for his long 29-yard completion. So definitely some miscues there, but I think I was – I was probably right on, right right enough on two guys, and, and maybe wrong about ITS. I think that's fair, and it's a good point by by Chase, and maybe a good uh, temper to my excitement around the secondary. I think I look at it through a quarterback perspective, in that when you are running man so much, it just puts so much pressure, especially on those interior guys, a Chase uh, a Chase Williams or a uh, or a Greg Johnson as well, because. Yes, the outside guys are on islands, but those are longer throws. When you're in man coverage in the slot, man, you're you're susceptible to, to getting broke either way. So I know how much pressure that puts on guys, especially having to go against, go up against the run. So I think moving forward, there are ways if Chase's game isn't to the level that we're used to with the Talanoa Bunga, where you can, you know, change things up and maybe not run man all the time to not put him in places where he can get picked on. So fair call out and over the course of the season there's no way SC can go with that uh, defensive approach every single time because teams will adjust and game plan for it but fair call out for sure and you know th- there's another option too and there's there's Kalen Bullock who steps in as a true freshman starts for Isaiah Polamau who was out with COVID and leads the team in tackles with eight tackles was around the ball um, on some pass plays made two huge third down stops that were just the first one was just a great read on a third and two as San Jose State's driving to a very high percentage pass you know dump off to Tyler Nevins the running back who is a, an elusive guy a guy who breaks tackles but Bullock just you know pounced on that play saw it coming told us afterward that you know he recalled from film study that uh, on third and two, that they like to dump it off to Nevins, so he was kind of already kind of cheating and looking for that, and just took off like a missile once he knew that was play and brought him down short of the sticks. Really impressive game from Kalen Bullock, who has impressed us all spring, all summer. I wasn't totally surprised, honestly. And now you have it when Polamau comes back, which is, is possibly this week. Do you move Kalen Bullock back to the bench or? Did you see enough in one game that you've got to legitimately ask, well, maybe we need to do a timeshare with, with him and Chase Williams and and just let it play out from there? Or is that not fair to Chase Williams, the guy that you've locked into that starting role since the spring, a guy you've talked up uh, constantly about what a leader he is, how, how valuable he is with, with his communication? Um, if you're the coaching staff, how do you evaluate that option and, and what you do with Kalen Bullock? It's a great question, and it's it comes down to me more than just X's and O's because you have a guy in Chase who, by all accounts, is a vocal leader, who is a presence, and who's a guy that you want engaged in that room. And um, I've experienced it firsthand in, in locker rooms where, hey, when the vocal guy doesn't play, then sometimes it can be, you know, just a little 
awkward because people aren't necessarily sure who to look to per se. I don't know if Chase has that pedigree per se, but there is something to be said about a guy who has uh, has more experience. But when you have a true freshman who goes out there and is as productive as Bullock was, I mean, we're not even talking just like, oh, he's a retro freshman or he's a younger sophomore or something like that. Like this guy... He's brand new. And so with that high of a ceiling, I think you have to keep him in the fold. You have to keep him engaged. And so I definitely think there's a world where he pushes for playing time. But I just I, the, the point I make about Chase is to temper things a little bit because I know the leadership factor and how valuable that is on a defense in terms of communication and whatnot. But without a doubt, I'm totally expecting Bullock to continue to play in this game, to, to continue to be counted on. And... Once again, if you're Todd Orlando and you have another defensive back that you can count on, it gives you more flexibility in terms of the defensive calls that you can you can roll out there. I know in our last podcast we t- we were curious about the the impact of all right if Talano Hufunga is gone in terms of creativity defensive wise, does that handicap you a little bit? Well, when you insert another another uh, defensive back in Bullock who you like, it's just another piece that you can use. I'm definitely expecting Bullock to be uh, involved in every game plan moving forward. Yeah, and I want to reiterate again, you know, it would be great if Chase Williams comes out and his lights out this week and really shows us, you know, kind of why he's been that clear option there the whole time. I'm definitely not uh, against Chase Williams in any way, but, you know, our job here is to is to give opinions and give our assessment and on honest assessment, and that's my honest assessment, but would love to see him come out and play much better this week and, and maybe make that an even more intriguing debate with Bullock. I I think that Kalen Bullock's snap count this weekend is going to be one of the most intriguing numbers to watch for and, and see what happens. If he plays, you know, four snaps and that tells you that Chase has a long leash. If he's playing 15, 20, 25 snaps, then we've got a competition on our hands here. So we'll see what happens. And, and again, they haven't officially said that Polo Mao is back yet. Clay Helton has said that he's on track to play uh, to return the end of this week from the COVID protocols. I was going to say, yeah, one last little point about the secondary and the impact of another guy there. Moving forward, I mean, we've talked about this in the past. They love Kanai Malga when he's blitzing, when he's not 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 forced to think about. And there's a linebacker group that maybe not might not be extremely elite, so to speak. And so when you have a secondary that you can blitz in your TO, like that to me could be the identity of the defense moving forward is let's put a lot of pressure on our on our secondary to show up. So then it frees up our linebackers and we're not counting on them as much in pass coverage. Moving forward, you talk about interesting storyline of snap count with Bullock. To me, it'll be what is the what is the game plan that they bring into Stanford? Because Stanford, it's harder to bring all those packages versus a run-heavy attack. You need to rely on your linebackers more. How much does SC blitz in week two? That's certainly something I'll be uh, looking for as well. Uh, well, in terms of snap count and linebackers, although it's also interesting Saturday that that Raymond Scott significantly outsnapped Raylan Goforth, who. It was the other way around last year. So that, you know, speaks a lot to Raymond Scott's growth and his acceleration and also that, that Raylan, I guess, just didn't lock down that position in, in the preseason. So uh, they'll keep rotating there, but I'll be curious to see if that widens further, if it gets closer to even, so we'll monitor that. So just overall, circling back to where I started, what is your overall confidence level in, in Tyler Orlando at this point and, and the ceiling for this defense? Ooh, let's see. I'll say confidence is uh, confidence. I'll put it like at 
eight out of 10 right now. I think he's got a good grasp of everything that SC can do. I feel like I love his aggressive scheme, which Clancy did that a little bit before as well, but love the defensive scheme. I love the way that he's allowing all three phases to work together, right? In terms of, hey, I know I have a great corner and a Chris Steele. I know I have some up and coming secondary members. Let me try. Let me trust them when I go up and face a, a, a good passing attack in San Jose State. I, I, I love that approach. I think, to me, where he will make his money the rest of the year in terms of making this defense elite, and you talk about ceiling, I think the ceiling's extremely high because of the elite, the potential pass rushers and the packages that they have. Ryan, me and you talked about that this, this offseason in terms of when you have a Corey Foreman, when you have a Drake Jackson, when you have a Hunter Eccles and some of those unique pieces on the edge, that gives a defensive coordinator tons of um, ability to mix things up. And for SC to take the next step, Todd Orlando and these packages on third down and getting to the quarterback, um, that to me is the next evolution of this offense. And yeah, you, you mentioned having Corey Foreman grow up in terms of being able to get his snap count up, but if they can rely on him more and more week in and week out as the season progresses, that is huge. I can't tell you... Uh, Clay mentioned this uh, in, in his presser. He, he said um, Starkle did a great job of doing three steps and getting the ball out, getting the ball out. Well, not every quarterback's going to do that. Most quarterbacks are going to hang on to the football, especially in the Pac-12 this year when there isn't the elite-level uh, quarterback count like there has been in years past. SC has the opportunity to get after quarterbacks, and the third-down pass rush with these um, unique creative pieces for Todd Orlando, that to me is the next step. I agree totally with you, and uh, I was probably at an 8 out of 10 confidence level entering the season, and I'm definitely still there. Okay, let's let's wrap it up with the look ahead to this week's matchup. Stanford, they come out last weekend and lose 24-7 to Kansas State. That game was in Arlington, Texas. Obviously, a very discouraging start for the Cardinal, and uh, for as, as frustrated as USC fans are, I'm sure the Stanford fans feel... Uh, much worse about where things stand after one week. Is this what you – I mean, I think we knew that they were still – they're still in, uh, if you want to call it rebuilding, uh, whatever, that they weren't going to be a powerhouse this year. But were you surprised that it was that much of a struggle for them? I was, without a doubt. Anytime Stanford's rushing for whatever that low number is. 39, 39 yards, 1.8 per carry. Yeah, that's 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 gross. Stanford can't can't be in that. There were there were years where Stanford was basically averaging like 200 yards rushing a game. So that to me is extremely concerning. I was more optimistic for Stanford only because David Shaw this whole offseason was you know loving up his offensive line and the growth there. And when Stanford was great, that was their that was their bread and butter in terms of getting it done up front. So definitely was concerned, especially in the way that they lost. And the short answer is for SC fans. I know it's, it's easy to get excited about a Stanford-USC rivalry, but this is a game where SC should beat up on Stanford. This is not the normal Stanford you're used to. They don't have that beef. They don't have, on, on both sides of the ball, I would even say they don't even have the athleticism with uh, with the McCaffrey-Andrew Luck era, that, that, that type of, like, that. that's gone. And it's, it's, it's a different Stanford look. It's uh, an opportunity where, I mean, SC should get after this team. Stanford announced on Tuesday that they're going to be starting uh, Tanner McKee at quarterback. It'll be his first start. He is a local kid from Corona Centennial High School, which obviously produced Drake Jackson and Corey Foreman and Gary Bryant and Tua C.V. Namora. So definitely a school at USC recruits. I'm sure they have plenty of McKee as a prospect. 
he was one of the two quarterbacks they used last week, and he was definitely the more effective. He was 15 of 18 for 118 yards and a touchdown. But coming to the Coliseum, making your first start, uh, probably having a lot of family and friends in the stands, uh, it, it could be a tough spot for him. What have you seen from Tanner McKee, and what is your expectation for him in terms of what kind of challenge he poses to the Trojans? If I, call, if I recall correctly, two years ago, uh, Keaton's first start was uh, in the Coliseum against Stanford. So. Was, yeah. Maybe this is the uh, the breakout performance for, for the next wave of quarterbacks. But yeah, Tanner McKee, um, younger in terms of eligibility, but he went on his LDS miss it mission, so older in terms of him as a uh, to a maturity level. Um, I see a quarterback that once again, I mean, it's it's a Stanford quarterback in terms of uh, you know bigger stature, stronger arm, looks the part in terms of walking up to the line of scrimmage and. One thing I did like about his performance on Saturday was it was efficient. I mean, and that's kind of Stanford ball right there. To me, that I haven't seen that I'll be waiting to see is kind of those explosion, explosive plays. I mean, it's one thing to just, you know, dink off to the tight end, dink off to receivers on the outside edge. But when Stanford quarterbacks are, are big time and this offense is rolling, it's the chunk plays, right? It's the, you know, run, run on first, run on second, and then third down, the whole playbook's open, and you convert down the field on those opportunities. That's the next evolution for him. Uh, protects the football, conservative, nothing that you're going to kind of – other than that, you should be concerned about if you're SC. This should be a game where you're licking your chops. But he is a capable quarterback that can be efficient. And the concern for me, if you're an SC fan, is if the offense starts opening up a little bit and some of those play-action sh- shots start hitting. And, I mean, this is a Stanford group who's still trying to find receivers on the out- on the outside. In the event that they take a big step this week, that's the one concern maybe, but this this is a Stanford offense that's trying to find itself on so many different levels. Is there anybody else that USC fans should be keenly aware of on the offensive side for Stanford? I like John Humphreys, their receiver. He's also another local local guy. Had a yeah. few receptions in that game. Bigger guy, physical guy. He just reminds me of a, of, of a player that could come on for Stanford down the road, but that might be, if we're being honest, Ryan, that might be kind of a year or two down the road, but he's a playmaker that I think it's it's the, you know, this is the advantage of playing Stanford early in the season is they, they are still figuring themselves out defensively, offensively, and at the end of the season, Humphreys could be a guy that that, that pops for them. And so um, you talk about some of the struggles with the Chase, um, a Chase Williams, if they're able to get on top of the safety safeties, John Humphreys, the receiver out wide, is a guy that's intriguing for me. Yeah, I covered him as a recruit a few times. USC was definitely recruiting him, and uh, he was he's very impressive then, and I'm not surprised he's already making a mark for them. Uh, defensively, what should USC fans know about the Stanford D? You should know right away this is not the Stanford D. All the Andre Hadari thrillers back in the mid-2010s, um, those defenses were stacked. They had NFL players all in their front seven. That's not the thing. That, that, that's not the case for Stanford anymore. That being said, um, defensive end, they have some players there. Thomas Booker is a guy that's played some football for them. He's a solid player. Um, they have a converted safety at linebacker who's, you know, athletic there. But they're, once again, trying to find their way um, on a secondary side of things. There were, there were years there, um, two, three years ago, where I was impressed with their secondary, and they had some guys at corner, but those guys were gone. They lose two safeties from a year ago. It's just a lot of new faces uh, about anyone. Wade Perry in the middle, he's solid, 
but uh, this is a group you can get after. All right. Well, that leads us to our final question, final topic, predictions. Max, do you have a prediction for Saturday? Predictions. I'll, I'll go I'll go 45-10 USC. USC getting after these guys, pissed off out of the negative vibe a little bit after a San Jose State win. They find their rhythm a little uh, – they find their rhythm, rhythm more so with receiver number two, and they get after Stanford in the running pass game. I, too, am going to maintain some optimism for the offense. I'm going to just, you know, shake off last week and, and stick with what I, I thought this offense could be for, for at least one more week. We could totally recalibrate after this game. But I have a similar kind of uh, game flow. I'm, I'm going 38-16 USC. The offense gets clicking. They clean up some of those red zone missed opportunities, which, uh, you know, that has to even out over time. And um, – I think Gary Bryant makes his presence felt. The run game continues doing enough, and we are talking much differently about the offense next week. That is my prediction. I've been wrong many times, though, so we will see what happens. I will be looking for explosive plays. That is huge for this offense. I think that will give everyone just a a chance to exhale. So, Gary Bryant, you're back. Let's get explosive plays. I think that will open up the offense and Everything else will fall in line after that. Great stuff, Max. We always enjoy it. We will talk to you next week. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening.